Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, well women. Welcome back to the show. Today on the show, we're talking about all things regarding autism. And so if you have someone in your life who's on the autism spectrum, you'll want to listen. Autism or autism spectrum disorder refers to a neurological and developmental disorder that affects how people interact with others, communicate, learn, and behave. It can include a broad range of conditions characterized by challenges with social skills, repetitive behaviors, speech, and nonverbal communication. According to the Centers for Disease Control, autism affects an estimated 1 in 36 children in the United States today. The longstanding underrepresentation of females in research and clinical practice may have generated a male-biased understanding of autism. While autism is diagnosed more frequently in males than females, researchers have recognized that this discrepancy may be influenced by various factors, including diagnostic biases and differences in symptom presentation. Overall, recognizing and understanding sex and gender differences in autism is crucial for accurate diagnosis and appropriate treatment. Continued research in this area can contribute to the development of more inclusive and tailored approaches to support individuals with autism spectrum disorder. There are many resources that you can find on the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash radio. Today, I'm going to talk to Dr. Lynn Kern-Kagel, clinical professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. She's been active in the development of programs to improve communication in children with autism, including the development of first words, grammatical structures, pragmatics, and social conversation. She's the author of Overcoming Autism and Growing Up on the Spectrum, and most recently co-author of Hidden Brilliance. Lynn Cagle and her husband, Robert, are the developers of Pivotal Response Treatment, which focuses on motivation. The Cagles have been the recipients of many awards, including the first annual Children's Television Workshop Sesame Street Award for Brightening the Lives of Children, the first annual Autism Speaks Award for Science and Research, Dr. Lynn Cagle has appeared on uh, many television shows and has been featured on ABC, PBS, and the Discovery Channel. We discuss her work that she's been doing in regards to autism, and we talk about how people around in the community can be better supporters, and also what led her to get into this work. As always, all the links and information are at wellwomanlife.com slash radio. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. Join us in the Academy for community, mindfulness practices, and strategy to live your well woman life. I'm speaking today with Dr. Lynn Cagle. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm excited to get talking to you. But first, before we get started, I'd love to know, who are you in the world today? <laughs> That's a good question. My focus is just to really help children and adolescents and adults on the autism spectrum. And my goal is just to make, I focus all of my research on support, intervention, ways to just help make their lives easier 
Okay. And so on the Well Woman Show, we really try to embrace women as whole people who have lots of different identities, not just their good, not just the good work in the world, but also sort of who, who else are you in the world? Oh, well. I do have two adult children of my own. Uh, one of them is an oncologist and the other one is a researcher. She has her PhD in special education and she also does treatment and training and work in autism. And I have a little grandchild, a new grandson who's about a year and a half. So that's been a lot of fun. And in my free time, I like art and jogging and reading. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I, it's important for listeners to understand, you know, that there's a depth and breadth to the people we talk to on this show. And it's not just about what we produce and churn out, right? And how we're helping everybody in the world with all of our good work. But there's a sense that, you know, there's this person behind all of this work and we want to recognize that. So thank you for sharing a little bit of, yeah, about you. That's nice to ask. I was a few years ago, I I would say it's more like five or six years ago, I was driving guest speaker that we had in our field. And he said, what do you do in your free time? And I realized I work so much. I don't really do that much in my free time. And I realized I got to change that because I was, mm-hmm. uh, it was hard to think of something to answer him about that. So, so I realized, oh yeah, there's things I like to do that I haven't done as much of. So I do try to balance things out. Okay, that's so interesting. And thank you for for sharing about that. We we talk a lot about this actually on this show. And so when you had that kind of idea, when he asked you that, did you actually go and then really try to change that? And, And did it work? Yes, I actually did. I realized that I haven't been doing any artwork and I like a variety of crafts and art and things like that. So I thought, you know, I'm going to try to fit that into my week. And so for the last, ever since that day, when it kind of dawned on me that I'm not this, that I'm a little too narrow, I have been trying to focus on some of these other things, especially like my artwork that I enjoy, but wasn't really having enough or making enough time to do, I should say. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, we could go off on a whole tangent about, about that, but I really do want to ask you about your work in the world. And as we heard in the introduction, you co-authored a book called Hidden Brilliance, Unlocking the Intelligence of Autism. And I want to ask you, and and we'll talk about the book, but just generally speaking about your work, what are you working on and how does it impact women and girls? I think as mothers, we're seeing such an increase in the incidence of autism. I just heard a couple of weeks ago that it increased to one in every 36 children. So People are having to, a lot of, every just about every family now has a child with autism in it. Otherwise, they know someone with a child with autism. And I know it's really scary to some people. And often it's scary because the deficits are pointed out. So in this work, we really tried to focus on the strengths and kind of looking at it in a different way, just looking at the kids in a different way and also rethinking the parents' role. Like, for example, sometimes the mothers feel more and more isolated when they have a child with autism, maybe the child has meltdowns or isn't socializing and they don't take them places and really kind of trying to reach out to the broader community to say, these people need our support. We we need to be there for them. We need to support them. We would want that for our kids or our grandkids or our extended families. And just really looking at how everybody can look more at the positive and also look at the strengths and support for the families. Yeah. So sort of normalizing instead of othering. Yes, exactly. And the the symptoms. Okay. And 
I'm very interested in a lot of what you just said. And I just want to ask you, can you just take us back possibly with the idea that listeners might not really know a whole lot about autism? And certainly I think you're right. Like most families have at least come in contact with somebody with autism, but, but I still think it's something that isn't really talked about openly. And there, there, there may be a lot of, I don't know, shame uh, involved in in it as well. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. But just can you take us back to when was this really considered a thing? Like when when did it start being diagnosed? And did we always have this in our community? It you know in in people, and it's just sort of now that we have the science to identify and name it and diagnose it that we're seeing you know, the numbers increase. Um, And so I'd love to hear about that too. Great. Well, I think the reason why it's a little bit complicated to talk about is because the individuals diagnosed on the autism spectrum represent a huge range. So some of them will have very good language development, but just have challenges socially interacting all the way to children who maybe never learn to verbally communicate and are Um, have no words their entire life, no spoken words. So that's a huge range. And then on top of that, they all have to have some type of restricted and repetitive behaviors. So that can range from a child who sits alone and rocks all day long to an individual who gets really, really interested in a particular topic. Like in our book, we mentioned a few like the bot stops on the freeway and and, um, I've had kids that are interested in toilets and drains and foreign countries or currency or flags. And so they might accumulate a lot of information in a particular area. So I think um, those are kind of the general characteristics and can represent, again, a wide range. Um, And I think autism has always existed. If we look at early writings, we see behaviors mentioned among adults or children that seem like they might have than autism, but it wasn't until the early 40s that it really came to be uh, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, where they, it was a diagnostic um, area. And it it seemed like in the 80s is when it really started to explode. That there are a couple hypotheses, but it seems like you know maybe there is a little bit better recognition of when a child has autism, but also there are more that have the more significant characteristics. So we're we're thinking that it probably is a real increase and then maybe some better by diagnostics for the more children that have more um, mild characteristics. Hmm. Okay. So you call it characteristics, not symptoms, right? Just to get the language. A little bit. We're trying to kind of move toward not using language that might make it seem like a horrible thing, like a symptom or like a medical condition or try to. Exactly. So we're trying to move a little bit more. I I know it's hard for everybody that's like me, that's been in the field for a while to always use the right language, but out of respect for people and their wishes, people with autism and their wishes and what they brought forth is, you know, they have a lot of great strengths. So looking at it like a deficit is, is really not the right way to look at it. Mm, Yes. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, So when we look at something as a deficit and we start um, naming it as as other or outside of the norm, right? Abnormal, or it's not 
good or, you know, labeling it in this way. We're basically saying that our current systems and structures of our society and communities don't support those people. And, and again, uh, you know, even in my language, I'm othering it, right? Like those people, how can you talk about this in a, in a way that is centering all people, including those, those people with some of these characteristics? Well, I think one of the big things is inclusion. I think the families oftentimes feel like they're excluded from social events and participating in regular education and family events even. So really just always thinking inclusion, how we can include it, how we can help the families and support them. And and one thing that kind of pulls at my heartstrings is that um, if you look at the literature, even some that my team has published, the stress levels of parents of children with autism are higher than any other disability. And, and we know in general that when a woman has a child, her stress goes up a little bit. It's a big lifestyle change. And all of parents, new parents have a little bit higher stress in different areas, but it's so much higher for for moms on the autism spectrum, uh, with the children on the autism spectrum. And to me, that really points to that the, we as a community aren't coming together to support these families and to support them and help them and make them feel like, you know, this is a part of our society and they need more help, not feeling like they're more secluded and alienated. So I think yeah. that's really important that in general, we kind of give them more support and really include their kids and really make an effort to find out what can we do to help you and help the family and provide what we need to do for these families. Mm. Yes. And so Dr. Cagle, we know from research and historically looking at the data, it, it looks like boys and men are diagnosed at higher rates, which would, you know, lead us to believe that, well, boys and men just have, you know, higher rates of autism. However, now that, you know, in, in more recent years and studies and the research is showing, actually, there are high rates of autism in girls and women. It's just that they're not diagnosed in the same way, or they don't present in the same way, and they don't have the same characteristics. And in fact, they might be better at masking the characteristics so that they're not seen. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. I feel that there still is a general... Um, um, feeling in the research that it is more frequent among boys. It's more, that's four to one that more boys are diagnosed than girls. And that's why a lot of people think there might be some genetic cause or relation relationship. But there's also been coming out some suggestions that maybe some girls, especially the ones that maybe just aren't like are sort of on the borderline that might not be diagnosed as frequently. And as you said, they might learn some of the procedures to kind of mask. And maybe, you know, if a girl is kind of quiet and not socializing too much, people let it go. Whereas a boy, they might be, oh, get out there and, you know, play with your friends and leave, you know, be the leader and all that. So I think there have been some articles suggesting that maybe women are a little bit better at masking and maybe they're not diagnosed quite as often. It could change in the future. I'm not not really sure, but it has been for many, many decades, very stable at four times more likely to happen in boys. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in that. I'd love, and I'll follow up on that. If you have any resources or references, we'll include them in the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash radio for those folks who are interested in looking at the sex and gender differences in autism. And I'm speaking with Dr. Lynn Cagle, author of 
Hidden Brilliance, Unlocking the Intelligence of Autism, and we'll be right back. For 25 years, I've been working in social justice and systems change because when women and girls thrive, families thrive, and whole communities thrive. What I realized through my work was that there are systems at play that work to keep women leaders functioning at half their capacity because of overwork, overwhelm, and burnout. The very nature of our linear strategic systems of power that have worked so well for so many high-achieving women are the exact reason we're crashing and burning at such high rates. So we end up with highly capable women leaders who are unable to realize their potential, whether it's in their health, their relationships, career, prosperity, or social impact. I'm Giovanna Rossi, host of The Well Woman Show on NPR. And what I do is work with high-achieving women leaders who feel stuck in their careers, overwhelmed by trying to do it all, facing a health crisis or unhappy in their relationships so that they can finally enjoy life again, be the leader they know they can be and make the impact they're here to make with their families and communities. It's my mission to use a feminist lens and the Well Woman Life framework to challenge the status quo and dismantle systems that work to maintain unequal power so that all women can thrive as leaders in their communities and families. Get started on your Well Woman leadership journey by applying for the group program at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. We're back on the Well Woman show with Dr. Lynn Cagle, author of a new book, Unlocking the Intelligence of Autism. And Dr. Cagle, we're going into a segment called Superpowers for Success, where we really let listeners in on who you are as a person who is able to publish a book and do all the things that you're doing in the world and help so many people. So I'd love to start by asking you, what does success in life mean for you? I never thought of that. Let's see. I probably have a thought of a single thing as success, but I kind of have, especially since I'm in my mid-60s, I've had a lot of time to reflect on things. And I, I feel like what's one thing that's important just to be happy in your occupation and your life is to try to focus on areas that make you feel good. I love writing. And that's something some people can't stand writing, but I love writing. So that's something I try to put in my every day. And sometimes I don't get around to it, but I'll say, okay, I'm just going to write one page today. And then I get started and I'm writing 10 pages or 15. So I think that's really important. The other thing I think that has helped me be successful is working with a team. There's so many people that aren't good team players, but I think being a good team player and working with people who have similar um, interests and just being able to work together with people makes a big difference. For example, I've written three books with Claire and I'm more from the academic world and Claire's written a lot of books on, uh, you know, young adult books and things like that. So pairing up with her has been great because I remember our first book that we wrote, it came, the first copy came back and all of my sections, well, all of her sections said, great, great, great. And all of my sections said, too academic, too academic, too academic. Uh And I called her back and I said, do you, do you think they don't like our book? And she said, no, they're going to publish it, but I'll help you write it. So it's not so academic. So I think, you know, pairing up with her was, has been great because we're, we're just, you know, she's able to help me with my weaknesses and Mm -hmm. I, you know, we can control contribute in different ways. So that's been that's been really helpful. So just having the right people around you, the people that are supportive of you, there's a lot of people that aren't. And those people 
you know, there's too many nice people in the world. So it's, it's better to be around the people that are going to be support you and that you work well with. That's such great advice. And I just want to call that out because we do talk about that here on this show, which is to really surround yourself with people who are supportive of you. And that sometimes requires setting some boundaries around who you will spend time with, who, you know, who and where do you want to spend your time and energy? So thank you for that. And I wanted to ask you, when did you know you were really good at what you do? <laughs> I, th- I think there's always room for improvement. But I feel like we starting in the autism world, I started in the 70s, actually. And there weren't very many children with autism. But I think um, looking at the kids and really kind of reflecting and saying, that the treatments they were getting back in the 70s and 80s that weren't fun for them. And actually, I work, do a lot of work with my husband, and he was the one that kind of started bringing up that we're doing all this stuff and the kids are getting better, but they never come in happy. They're never smiling. And, you know, you want your kids to be happy. You want them to enjoy things. And just because they have a language challenge or a, you know, some behaviors that interfere with learning doesn't mean that it's their fault. It means it's our fault because we're not teaching them in the right way. So we, my husband and I actually spent many decades working together, trying to figure out how are we going to make the intervention more fun for the kids? Mm -hmm. And it's, we talk about this intervention, like using child preferred activities and meaningful activities and things that are connected, re, you know, reward, rewarding activities that are connected to the behavior, but they actually work with all kids, even understanding problem behaviors, understanding meltdowns, because they're really communicative in nature. The kids are trying to tell us something and that's, that's relevant to every child. If a child has a behavior, if they have good language, we just say, use your words or tell me, you know, tell me with your words instead of you know, having a little meltdown. But with Mm. children that have language delays and have more difficulty with that, we need to put in more procedures to support that. So I think that, so we've really, I think it's been helpful because we, I did not expect in my career for there to be such an explosion of autism. I kind of expected it to be a low incidence, kind of rare condition from the time I started, but then it started gradually going up and up and up and I got busier and busier and busier. So it's been kind of interesting. But one of the things that I'm kind of excited about is those core characteristics that we published about in the 80s, such as using child choice and varying the task a lot and rewarding children if they try instead of saying, you know, they're wrong, just rewarding their attempts and having natural reinforcers that are connected to their behavior and Mm. mixing easy and hard tasks. All of those are still used by even the newer people are coming up with new names and different types, but they still use a lot of those core inner core motivational procedures, which I that's really exciting to me that um, that so many people are coming together saying these are really important things for our kids for learning. Yeah. And that's good evidence for you to know that what you're doing is is making an impact. And so Dr. Cagle, can you describe a personal habit that contributes to your well-being so you can do everything you do? One of the things that I do that really helps me is not worrying about the future. So sometimes if my to-do list starts getting too much, I say, okay, what do I need to do today? Not what do I need to do tomorrow and next week and when is this due and when is that due? But really just looking at what I need to get done today, taking it in small chunks. For me, making lists is really helpful. And I try to put a lot of things on my list so that even the small things I can check off, like even if it's just, you know, 
something that takes one minute. It's like, well, I got a lot more checks today. So making the list, maybe I'm inflating my productiveness here when I do that, but making lists, just daily lists instead of, you know, worrying about the long term is helpful. Because a lot of things we worry about in the long term never come to fruition. So that's good. It's easier that's... just to think about the everyday thing. Yeah, that's good. And I know a lot of people in this community love checklists and lists because uh, we we generally work with a lot of high achieving women and you know making lists is, <laughs> is one of those things that a lot of people do what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time oh i'm not sure that i feel like i have any superpower i do feel like i'm i feel empathetic as a person so i feel like that's helped me my kids i'm really close with my kids and they reach out to me a lot which makes me feel good and i feel like um i thought i was really empathetic to families and with children with autism until i had a nephew with autism and realized that it's it's different when you have a child in your own family and i i felt i was nice that i was able to be helpful and i think i even he was actually kind of the motivation for the book because when he was being assessed, I realized that the first assessment, he was so upset because he didn't have any words. He was nonverbal. He was about two and a half. And he took a toy and threw it down and it went into, gosh, maybe at least a dozen pieces. And he put it together so quickly. And then I realized that when he, we got the report, all it talked about was his quote unquote disruptive behaviors, throwing things, you know, tantrums, meltdowns. And I realized nobody noticed how quickly he put that toy together. And that is a huge sign of intelligence. Right. So, um, so the diagnostic started, tool, yeah. the diagnostic tool did not include, it didn't allow for capturing that information. And I think we're just trained as I, my training is my master's is in um, speech and like speech pathology and my PhDs in psychology. And we were always just trained to go in there and figure out what's wrong with the child. Mm. We weren't ever trained to figure out what's right with the child, you know, yeah. and, and looking at what the child is doing well really helps us, guides us towards what'll be a good intervention, what'll be most helpful for the child, where we can build, building on those strengths. So I think that's something that, and, and a lot of the ways we diagnose children are based on their characteristics not based on, and we don't always include in our reports and just in our discussions and things like that. The focus is not always on their strengths and what they do well. They're too often on their deficits. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, just a couple, a few more questions. What advice would you give your younger self when you were, say, 25, 30 years old? Oh, I probably... Um, let's see. Gosh, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, I always feel like what we know now would always have been so helpful back then. And I think um, one challenge was, I think, having children of my own and trying to balance that work and everyday life career. And I think that um, one of the things that I did was always try to carve out time for the kids' performances and school performances and things like that. So I think that that was really important. Um, I think maybe stressing a little less when I was younger would have been nice too. <laughs> I think I probably right? nice of it's good. Everything's going to be fine in the long run. Don't worry. <laughs> I know. Wouldn't it be great if you could go back and tell yourself that and she would actually listen? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Two other questions. Do you identify as a feminist? 
I think I probably would have to say yes. I don't call myself that, but I definitely would have to say yes. And I'm, I've tried to help as many women in their careers. It's often harder. Like we always look in education. I'm in education. And if you look, you know, we always have the higher up administrators are almost always males. And then the women just kind of never get up to that point. And um, I think one of the things that's helpful is choosing a partner that's supportive and that not going to stand in the way because it's really easy for you know, to women to take on the majority of the work with childcare and home, you know, things yep. at home and yeah. their work. So absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And last question for you What are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? I'm actually reading a book that was given to me called Skin in the Game, which normally I wouldn't have picked that for myself, but it was given to me by the author. And I actually, really am enjoying reading the book. It's nice. about a woman that started this, you know, skincare line. And it's kind of interesting reading about her history. So I've been really enjoying that. Okay, good. We love to collect just a sort of a snapshot of what people are reading when we're when we talk to you on the show. So thank you for sharing that. And we'll put it in the show notes. And Dr. Lynn Cagle, thank you for your work and for being on the show today. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.